0: Thank <laughs> you. Comment Podcast. My name is Violet Luca and I'm the digital producer. I'm sure that there are plenty of films you've been curious about but have never gotten around to and maybe a few you're actively avoiding even though you know you should probably watch them. In this episode of the podcast we engage in a kind of secret snowflake exchange to address these gaps. Each person gave two films to another participant to watch that they knew the recipient had never seen before. Then we talked about what happened. The Given Movies ran the gamut from Hollywood prestige productions to a Hong Kong action classic and a 90s Vera Chilova film. I was joined by
1: Michael Koresky, Editorial Director at Film Society of Lincoln Center. Nick Pinkerton, Film Critic at Large.
2: And Eliza Ma, Head of Programming at Metrograph.
0: Here's the conversation. Thank you all for coming. So today is, how should I say this? Celebratory? Celebratory. You know, Film comment. the magazine, the first issue, it was originally called Vision, was first published in the spring of 1962. And so in the spirit of birthdays and the spirit of rebirth and gifting, today we've all gifted each other two films, two films that we haven't seen before. The first is just a film that we're curious about hearing that person talk about. And the second is something we thought that they would enjoy. So Michael why don't you start us up by talking so Lisa was your gift giver and what did she give you as the phone that she thought she just wanted to hear you talk about?
1: Well, first of all uh, gifting is is probably a less accurate term than forced upon <laughs>
0: <laughs> I, think. There's a, I mean there could be a like let's be honest there's a torture element involved in gifting because sometimes you can give somebody like a gym membership and they're like, oh, thank you. <laughs> but let's see let's see where did she put yes. you I
3: mean I thought, These were real I thought workouts. that you would legit like yours and it was only when we were making our ways through the films that you gave us that I realized I had not really capitalized on the opportunity
0: <laughs> well we can as we... I
3: was in the seventh hour of the green mile <laughs>
0: Well, there's 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 a
3: little spoiler for everybody.
0: Spoilers, spoilers, but no, I mean, uh, yeah, just to
1: keep them hanging on.
0: Uh, We can obviously this is a concept we will revisit. Like this is clearly like a multi-parter. But but anyway, I have, a, I have
1: a hard time believing that the Green Mile won't be the representative image of this podcast <laughs> on the
0: website.
1: But the question is, which close-up, which gruesome
3: close-up? <laughs> no, no,
0: wait, 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 wait! In or, due time. In due time, Michael, please go first.
1: Okay. So yes, my gift giver was Aliza, and interestingly, unbeknownst to her, when she f- had me watch this movie, this was a movie that I had always been s- afraid of watching. I guess because I'm something of a, a, a scary cat, cat. <laughs> <laughs> wow. though I love horror movies I don't like it when they go too far and there are certain certain um kinds of uh physical mutilations that I guess I'm just not that into Pinot. so but it's also a movie that I always wanted to see so the, the movie that she gave me the first movie is was Barbe Schroeder's Matress, which is in the Criterion collection which so you would think that it's safe i guess that's a safe word right criterion but <laughs> sallow is in the realm of the senses mm-hmm. is cries and whispers all films that have genital mutilation in them so what better way to start this is podcast that, than isn't that, isn't that, that a the Eclipse genital box? <laughs> the genital mutilation yes. set that was one of the first eclipses uh. <laughs> yeah so anyway mitras is um this actually kind of wonderful romantic comedy that just happens to be about a dominatrix played by Boula Augier. And I was always really curious whether she'd be able to pull that role off because I've seen her in so many other things Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie and Le Pont du Nord. And she has um, always been wonderfully charming and delightful. And so I've always thought in the back of my head, I knew she also played this heavy dominatrix role. And she's absolutely great in the film. And Gerard Depardieu is the thief who, or burglar, is perhaps a better term, who one night stumbles into her layer. I mean, I was really struck by the set design of this. It's pretty incredible. And it's almost like her version of a a bachelor pad, right? It has this retractable staircase between these two apartments. So on the, on the top floor is her, you know, quote unquote, normal life, her bourgeois life. And then underneath is this dungeon where she entertains. How um, great is the entranceway into the dungeon? Do you mean the retractable staircase?
2: Yeah, but it opens. It opens up from her uh, coffee table. Yes,
1: like the table in her boudoir. It kind of it slides off and then it descends. <laughs> well, it's it's, it's well, really it's striking it's like visually. Close
3: encounters or something <laughs> like when she first descends into the into the dungeon. Like it's very like extraterrestrial. Yeah,
1: totally scene. unexpected. And when I compare it to like a '60s male bachelor pad, because I think about like rotating beds or some sort of crazy hi-fi stereo. Equipment, like she has her thing and it's this amazing staircase and the reason that i had uh, always been squeamish about watching is not because i don't want to watch a movie about snm because there's so many great movies about snm but because this has some actual pretty graphic and famous infamous footage of a real dominatrix doing some things to these actual masochists and um, one of which is the fairly clinical depiction of a man getting his penis nailed to a board <laughs> i had read about this many times as as many of us have with like the movies we're too afraid to watch and i thought well okay well there's a movie i'll never see as good as i've heard it is so that scene does take place and I, i'm kind of i was kind of amazed by it although i actually i have to admit i did watch it through fingers my fingers covering my eyes i i
2: that's but, how i pictured you would watch it <laughs>
1: <laughs> i really did like i was I, I was and the dog was next to me on the couch and the dog always she knows when there's something tense going on in the room so she's she she just immediately woke up and looked at me with these sympathetic eyes and was asking if i was okay because i was just <laughs> trying like, to I understand just like, oh my god what's going on but it's it's actually a really amazing scene it's it's the the detachment with which he shoots it um is really artful and he said many times now that I've gone back and read interviews and seen interviews with him that he's always trying to figure in that movie the proper camera distance from what he's showing. So if you get too close, it becomes kind of graphic or circus like if you get too far away, it becomes too dispassionate. So he found this really great in between. It's really just, and there's no music and it just happens. Mm. And, um, and there are other things happening, you know, there's like man who's stretched on a rack, um, which is kind of hard to watch too, but not as bad and there are you know, nipple piercings and uh, there are definitely some pretty extreme things that happen but the movie's ultimately just about this these two people trying to like make it work <laughs> i guess <laughs> for lack of a better term and it has this fantastic ending in which they're both in the driver's seat of this car finally coming together and um able to kind of embrace their sadist and masochist side and it's really kind of lovely and i thought it's that it was an incredible of shot of,
2: a, of both of them in the car at the end it's
1: incredible shot and you just don't know how they even captured that, right? Because they're both, I think one is pressing on the gas and one of them is pressing on the brakes. Yeah. And they're careening through the <laughs> woods. And uh, I don't know. So thank you, Aliza. I conquered a fear and I had a really great time watching Matrix. My pleasure. And yeah. Barbara Schroeder is actually kind of a terrific figure that people should talk about more.
3: You've you have not even mentioned the horse stake.
1: Yes, I actually just thought of that a second ago. <laughs> <laughs> when I was, another thing that I absolutely, absolutely fucking hate watching, though it happens in a lot of fine films, is the death of animals. Yeah. And um, quite unexpectedly for me, there's a fairly graphic one here, um, in which Gerard Herbidu stumbles upon an abattoir. Is that the proper term for a horse is yeah. killed? Um, I wasn't sure if that was just for pigs. And... Um, <laughs> Yes, it happens fast and it's pretty horrible, and then it's immediately followed by Gerard <laughs> Depardieu Tucking into some a horse steak. steak. <laughs> <laughs>
0: See, I would think he would just go up to the horse and just bite it, but he waited he for w- someone else waited. to kill it. He and waited. Cut he had to wait until the this is this is a younger Depardieu. That's right. Yeah, that's pours right. out. <laughs> right later on, he goes. To that. <laughs> he
1: goes to Outback Steakhouse later on. This. this, this He's literally elaborate. an ogre now. <laughs>
0: Nick, please. Uh,
3: well, should I should I start with the the challenging film? Yes. Okay. Well, Michael, uh, through long acquaintance, knew that uh, I had never seen nineteen ninety nine's The Green Mile, a Frank Darabont <laughs> film, which ends hysterically with the line sometimes the green mile seems so long
1: <laughs> after 180 minutes after 188 minutes <laughs> um, One of my favorite last lines yeah, Bef- uh, b- just as a preface i just want to say for anyone out there who's wondering how this could possibly be happening right now i have always wanted <laughs> <laughs> nick to see the green mile for various reasons so this is this opportunity presented itself
3: um well, and then I think a, a couple of weeks back, were we not discussing the Darabont filmography, and like who, like who is this guy? Like, <laughs> what kind of career is that? Like, you only direct prestige Stephen King adaptations <laughs> and nothing else. And I, and then I was parsing his filmography and found. His first directorial credit, I believe, is a 1983 short called The Woman in the Room, which is a Stephen King adaptation. (laughs) It's like this man was put on the earth to do one thing and one thing only, which is adapt Stephen King novellas or longer works Mm -hmm. and also to make... Majestic.
1: (laughs) I was waiting for you to bring that up. (laughs) With James Carey which I've also not seen so. I also saw that and I spent the whole movie half out of my seat because I was like am I leaving? Am I leaving? Am I leaving? And then I stayed. So to bring uh,
3: those unfortunate souls who like me up until yesterday have not seen the Green Mile (laughs) up to date Tom Hanks uh, stars as a prison guard in uh, depression era Louisiana Paul Edgecombe who one day, while he's uh, going about his rounds, a new man is brought on to uh, Death Row, who is this absolute giant of a man, played by the late Michael Clark Duncan, and uh, in the course of the usual back and forth between guard and captor, uh, the Hanks character discovers that this gentle giant of a man is not what he seems, and...
0: (laughs) Emphasis can I can I just say I did not watch all of it. I watched maybe like the first 30 minutes of it. And there's such an emphasis on Michael Clark Duncan's physicality sure. that it's grotesque. Like it's like they have him for people who don't remember this movie don't haven't seen this movie, he's I believe the correct term would be hulking out of his clothing where he just wears the tightest like his shirt is un- perpetually unbuttoned. He's wearing like these giant overalls. It's like, and you know, he's towering over all these like little white guards. Like they dug a trench for them to walk through or well, something. The, uh, it's the, insane. The, pres- the
3: prison van rolls in and it's it's like dragging on the ground practically from yeah. the the sheer heft.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
3: Of uh, the Michael Clark Duncan character, who, in a fantastic moment, Tom Hanks is. Uh, prison guard is afflicted with a uh, urinary tract infection
0: <laughs> that's how he starts his story it starts yeah. as a old well i mean i'll get like, to i'll
3: get to what? that in due time oh, okay I'm um, sorry. i don't mean to step on and your toes. i don't know i don't know why that it's true as violet says dabs greer plays a elderly <laughs> paul edgecomb <laughs> in uh, 1999 and i don't know why this was but for a time it was thought that all films needed some kind of like book in device yes. where you see all period films, be it Titanic, be it Saving Private Ryan. Yeah.
1: Often Tom Hanks films.
3: Yes. Yeah. Like that you needed to see the characters. And first of all, I mean, it adds a good, 35 minutes to this film which would be too short otherwise also
1: i I believe that this this the wraparound here and the wraparound saving private ryan have terrific windbreakers
3: yeah uh bright red in uh in this one uh powder blue famously in saving private ryan that is probably the piece of costuming that i have talked about most in my entire life my absolute fascination with that windbreaker knows no bounds anyhow michael clark duncan uh lays hands on tom hanks's afflicted uh, cock and he uh, then goes home and rails his wife four times in one night it's the first time <laughs> since they were 19 years old as we're informed and that's just sort of an amuse-bouche for the main course which is that tom hanks is superior at the prison played by uh, James Cromwell, uh, his wife, played by Patricia Clarkson, is ailing uh, with a brain tumor. And having figured out that uh, their captive has these incredible healing powers, is able to essentially work miracles, they conspire, all of the guards and the Hank's character's cell block conspire to bust him out and take him to their boss's house and have him lay hands on <laughs> On the boss's wife and bring her back to health, take the uh, brain tumor out of her. And what happens is essentially like a cucking miracle, <laughs> where Michael Clark Duncan is led into the bedroom and hovers over a terrified Patricia Clarkson, but finally lays lips on her and sucks the illness out of her while James Cromwell <laughs> looks on <laughs> with an amazed <laughs> expression. And his wife is restored to complete health. And I mean, I don't know how you can look at this scene and not read it as this miracle bull being brought in to service Patricia Clarkson and and bring her back among the living. That being said, that being said, I was occasionally rather moved by the Green Mm -hmm. Mile. And it's one of these cases where, individual performance choices can be very moving even though the overall like context that they exist in is so ridiculous beyond belief and i i mean i won't go so far as to say i think it's successful on any level there's no reason in the world for it to be three hours and eight minutes however first of all i mean the death row scene just sort of inevitably makes for Powerful drama. I mean, if you look at uh, Fritz Lang's *You Only Live Once* or uh, *Tin Rillington Place*, the wonderful Fleischer film, like there's just no way that that setting cannot be a emotional crucible of a certain amount of power. And Tom Hanks is Tom Hanks. There are some deeply silly moments, including his first micturation after his urinary tract infection has been cured, which. If this isn't like a GIF now, I don't know why <laughs> it isn't. <laughs> like, this thing should be huge. <laughs> 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 his his borderline orgasmic urination, but because there's
0: so much, there's so much weird attention played to it. He tells this old woman at the old folks' home in the beginning, like, "I had a powerful urinary yeah. tract infection, yeah. perhaps the worst of my life." And it's like, why are you telling this? <laughs> what a horrible. Like, well,
1: it's it's the it's the catalyst for this very strange story of healing. I mean, yes. now now one of the reasons that I one of the many reasons I wanted to watch it. One is just, there's just, for me, so much ridiculous quotable stuff in that movie and and I just want you to be in on the joke. (laughs) Secondly, I find it to be a strangely moving and somewhat successful, very distinct American Hollywood epic. Well, I don't quite know how it does what it does but I'm, I'm laughing at it one second and then I'm, you know, crying the next. I mean, there's something to that and there's something... I'm, and I'm, I say this really broadly, but there's something generally transgressive about what it's doing with race. I'm not entirely sure it works because it's also kind of tied into all of the ridiculous magical Negro tropes that are so offensive. This was but there's Bagger something Vance going hero. on. Yeah, I mean, I, I, there's something to... An, I mean, this is spoilery or whatever. It's been on forever. But like, ultimately, what they do is they end up killing him. They know that he's both innocent and a miracle. Mm-hmm. And they still put him in the electric chair and kill him. And that's the point of the film. Ultimately, the point of the film is that they have to live with this white guilt, for lack of a better term, for their lives. And it's a very, very strange metaphor. And it almost is so offensive that it becomes moving. <laughs> I don't know. Well, I
3: mean, it should be said the the Michael Clark Duncan character, I like scribbled in my notes, uh, fune this the Memorius, like... <laughs> he's he's just <laughs> oppressed by his knowledge of all the world's suffering just as as Funes is oppressed by his unimpeachable memory and knowledge of everything at all times so it, i mean this is also part of it that he is asking to be put down essentially and many things in the Michael Clark Duncan performance are i think very moving when Barry Pepper is like heaving up snot as he puts on the wrist fasteners on the electric chair. I can't but be uh, touched by that. And it should also be noted that, like, it seems like half of the movie is in these sort of smothering close-ups, which add to the overall grotesquery of the Mm -hmm. affair, where you have um, Sam Rockwell as uh, this wild bill, this roving bandit, wild man, possibly serial killer, who is in one of the cells and you have him with his like you know hillbilly novelty teeth like three inches from the lens grimacing away like everybody is it's surprising that many takes like the
1: lens isn't spit flecked at the end of them and i'm sure it was like it's a a, everything's very tight it's a a three hour and eight minute movie that takes place in one stretch of very bergman prison No, I think it's, Darabont's
3: it's... is the nearest thing that we have
1: to an American Bergman. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we could, I mean, we could take apart the film line by line, but we don't have that well, and, much time. I mean,
3: the other thing that I briefly wanted to touch on is like this strange combination of seriousness of purpose with a sort of tales from the cryptish morality. There's one Doug Hutchison as Percy Wetmore. He's just the <laughs> most intriguing. appalling character. In probably film history, he's racist. He's a coward. He's a sadist. He pees himself. He pees himself. <laughs> he's named Wetmore. Some fun has had with that. <laughs> he reads Tijuana Bibles on the job. <laughs> <laughs> he's just an utter piece of garbage. And, like, in classic, like, weird tales form, he winds up in the mental institution after he gets those weird pellets of brown rice breathed into its, whatever those are. What? Uh, what? oh, what? Michael Clark Duncan s- later after sucking uh illness out of people, he expels uh. these clouds of I don't know what
1: disease. The disease. disease, the disease goes into the sky and evaporates, but at yeah. one point to get back at this other villain, he actually gives him the disease yeah yeah you just have to see it contamination it's all about contamination and then
3: yeah and so i was i was parsing (laughs) you know beyond the directorial credits (laughs) i noted that darabont uh, is a writer on nightmare on elm street 3 dream warriors Mm. the best of the film yes it
0: is oh my god i love that movie as
3: well as as well as the 1988 the blob so like there is the definite pulp trash sensibility at work along with this sort of heavy-handed treatise on race relations uh, I am not sad to have seen The Green Mile. <laughs> That's all that matters to me. Much like Paul Edgecombe. <laughs> I will live to with it to the age of 108 with Mr. Jingles, my graying circus mouse companion. <laughs> and my shocking red windbreaker.
0: Uh, so, Elisa, could you talk about... So, I'm going to say the one that I was interested in hearing you... Hearing you talk about, we were all out one night. Someone made a joke about Jay and Silent Bob, and you expressed sadness that you did not
2: know anything about Kevin Smith movies, the View, Esquireverse. I have no recollection of expressing (laughs) sadness about that.
0: You were legit bummed. You were. I was I don't. think And then Nick comforted you. Nick was like, Nick was like, it's okay. You really don't need to know it. And I thought. Yes, she does. <laughs> yes, she does. So I gifted you, Jane, Silent Bob Strike Back, which is, it's really in the middle of the Viewask universe, but it has like a little sampling of everything. And this was a film that was playing when I was working at
2: a movie theater. So please. Well, I had. A certain feeling that you might have been trying to get back at me no! for having offended you or wronged you at some point. I love you. No, this was such a cruel gift. No. <laughs> yeah, I I couldn't really finish it in one sitting, but I did eventually finish it. I had to split it up in two days.
1: Mm-hmm. Was it eighty minutes?
0: It's uh hour 45. Yeah. Yikes.
2: Yeah, I didn't remember it's a it being lot that of and Silent Bob. It's my first sojourn into the Ask Universe.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> Ask Universe. <laughs> I thought it was like an Ask Jeeves thing. I, <laughs> so I looked it up and I realized that it wasn't an actual website. It was it was this whole like mythology mm-hmm. that Kevin Smith had woven for himself so it required some background research Mm -hmm. which i wasn't anticipating but thank you very much
3: (laughs) we went to uh, jay and silent bob's secret stash in red bank hung out there for a while (laughs) yeah
2: primary research
3: (laughs) you gotta burn some shoe leather you know
2: well can you describe
0: can you summarize the pot such as it were
2: i will try (laughs) so jay and silent bob are pot dealers who stand outside of the store and sell marijuana and <laughs> They're also cracking wise a lot. <laughs> yeah. And then they're uh, banned from the store because of a disagreement with, with the with the proprietor. And so yes. then then for some reason they find out that the comic book that they're that that was based on them yes. um, is being uh Blood, Blood and Man and Chronic. And chronic. Yeah, thanks. Uh, (laughs) Is uh, being optioned as a film Mm -hmm. by Miramax. Yes. And uh, was indeed going into production. And um, (coughs) they were not getting a piece of this. So they decided to go on a road trip from New Jersey to Hollywood. Yes. (laughs) Um, And on this trip, they encounter many colorful characters, including uh, a group of. Diamond thieves mm-hmm. disguised as, uh, like, hippies? Like hot women. Like hot animal y- activists? Yeah. Who trick Jay and Silent Bob into kidnapping a fake monkey mm-hmm. who's actually a decoy for their entire diamond thief operation. Mm-hmm. Then Jay and Silent Bob end up believing that these girls have passed away while the monkey and the two men go on to to Hollywood, somehow this is as long as it sounds. By the way, yeah, this movie really. gives The only you way to
1: talk about this film is to summarize it. Thank you, Elizabeth.
2: Yes, yeah. Yes. So, but in in the end, they end up uh, storming Hollywood together. They go into the the film studio mm-hmm. and uh, end up end up. Uh, what do they do? They. Somehow reunite with the monkey. <laughs> I, I I can't. It's, this is so insane. It it is. It's, it's <laughs> definitely they reunite problem. with the monkey, and then they Jason. They meet Jason Biggs mm-hmm. and uh, what's that guy, Dawson from Dawson's Creek. Oh. James Vanderbeek. James Vanderbeek mm-hmm. and Jason Biggs, who are playing the fictional version of Jay and Silent Bob. One man, in, and Yeah, in this <laughs> in this fake Miramax movie within the real Miramax movie, mm-hmm. uh, directed by um, Chris Rock.
3: Is that right? I, I, I conflate the action in this with their cameo in Scream 3. <laughs> I'm not <laughs> which kidding I, you.
2: Which I've learned is also part of the Ask Universe. Mm-hmm. Um but, but in the end, everyone's happy. There's a concert <laughs> and everyone everyone's there. Um, Morris Day
3: uh, and the Time. Yes,
2: yes. Because that for some
0: reason, Morris Day and the Time is totemic to Jay and Silent Bob, even though they've, they've literally never mentioned it in any of the other movies that they've been in. But they still have a big party at the end. Big
2: American party. So I was shocked because apparently this film was a mild box office success. <laughs>
0: Yeah, because I'll say this came out in August of 2001, of course, the month right before September 11th happened. So as I said, I was working at the movie theater at the time. And so a lot of these movies got held over. People would come in and say, I just want to watch a movie right now. I really don't care what it is, which is why the Keanu Reeves hardball where he coaches a all black inner city team of kids was a huge box office success
1: i too. was at a video store at the same time and everybody wanted that movie yep <laughs> not not jane silent bob <laughs> at my video store nobody rented jane silent bob but hardball
3: yeah big I'll, deal. i'll briefly note i saw it at the bottom half of a drive-in double bill with the nicole kidman vehicle the others oh. and i think about 10 minutes before the ending of jane silent bob Strike back! I just drove out. Actually, no.
2: You you noted to me the point at which you walked out.
3: Oh yeah, yeah. When Will Ferrell's rolling around on the halfway
2: through. Actually, (laughs) (laughs) it just kept going after that.
0: You 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 were all excited. You're like, oh, it's almost over. No,
2: no.
3: But the thing is, I think I may have been incorrect because there's a lot of repetition in it. So, uh, and again, my memory is not so sharp. Having 16 years ago <laughs> tore out of the gravel like driveway leading into some greater Dayton area drive-in theater
0: but please give I mean I mean your your plot summary was pretty damning but please uh your thoughts your
2: well thoughts. I actually found it. you know after after the experience of having to watch the film um <laughs> I actually think that it's it's kind of like an innocent movie it's a sign Mm -hmm. of more innocent times in a way um they're just like mind is so blown by the concept of the internet Mm -hmm. and that's sort of a constant theme throughout the throughout the film is that um these guys are trying to explain to themselves the concept of the internet Mm -hmm. and their concept of it is so innocent and sweet it's just like people go on message boards and make fun of each other anonymously. And then at the end, you can actually track them down and beat them up for saying bad things about you online.
1: So I guess all of us are just patiently awaiting Kevin Smith's treatise on the internet today. Yeah. Well, there's a new Jay and Silent Bob film in the works. Oh,
3: marvelous. For all of us heads.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I have to say, um, out of the Kevin Smith movies that I have seen... Because Kevin Smith was really, among certain of my high school friends, they really loved him. They really legit would quote Mallrats, which is funny because Mallrats is, they're really only about three or four quotable lines in that movie, and the rest is just pure filler. I feel like the reason why I wanted to sort of introduce you with uh, uh, James <laughs> Strike Strikeback is because it feels like, it is like a weird thing that could only happen at that time where Kevin Smith very famously started off with clerks. There are some people who would still stand by that movie and be like, look, this is like a good representation of being a wage slave, working at some crappy job you don't really like, but this is, it, it morphed into something else. And I feel like Jane Silent Bob is like the big, the, the example of like what the indie movie industry turned into was was for a very brief period of time where it was there are these idiots that that really don't do anything it's just a road movie and yet it's still referencing all this pop culture like Carrie Fisher appears as a nun that uh well I also
1: think by that point, it became a brand. Right. I mean, that was slowly happening over the 90s. By the time this movie comes out, it's so up its own ass. It's so meta. It's so into itself that it's just a brand of indie film.
2: Yeah. Yeah, it was so of its time in the sense that it, first of all, got away with a lot of gratuitous cursing and Mm -hmm. very offensive and sort of pointless, you know, jokes about gay people Mm -hmm. and women Mm -hmm. and um, even the dumb, like, fart jokes in it just were they seem so dated now yeah. you know from our perspective and the, and the meta stuff that you talk about like the stars who appear in the studio talking about themselves Jay and Silent Bob crash into this like painting of a set uh-huh. and they're trying to walk into it and they do that looney tunes thing where they just like fall back and then people come and like roll it away it's a total trick of the eye that to me, it's just a relic of this, like, pre writer Strike, pre-reality <laughs> TV show thing where it's just, like, you can be self-reflexive, but then it still needs to exist on a certain level of artifice. Right. And you can never really question anything beyond that. But, but you know, so many times you hear the word Miramax being said mm-hmm. by the characters. Um, yeah, it's just this egregious piece of, like, self, self-perpetuating advertisement for what it actually is right
0: and there was um i will say that jay and silent bob so aside from the fact that Blood man and chronic really was a cart was a comic book there was a special comic book released in the lead up to this film which uh involves suzanne the ape which is the animal that you referenced earlier. And the website that bedevils them and where all these people are talking mad shit about them is called moviepoopshoot.com, which is very clearly... I have that in my notes,
2: moviepoopshoot.com. Which
0: is very clearly supposed to be Ain't It Cool News. And like, it's so fascinating to me that this, you know, as you say, it's very much of its time, but it's a harbinger of many things to come and like what... To me, Ain't It Cool News, their their executives were very clearly paying attention to what Harry Knowles was doing on that site and the weird power that he, you know, wielded. And so that's sort of why we are stuck in this endless cycle of, like, comic book movies where, you know, they know that these people, these fans will always come out for these movies regardless of what is in them because it's their book, Right. And they also know that if you put in the right amount of references to other films, that film critics will be like, "Oh, that's interesting that they referenced uh, the, you know." In Logan, it's very interesting they referenced Shane, and I'll put that in my review, and therefore I'll give it a good review. Like they they've tooled it so much based on like what was going on on um, inacoolnews slash moviepoopshoot dot com that it's like, it's weird. It's very weird.
3: Well, yeah, this is a thing that i'm now thinking about because we were talking about this particular moment fall of 2001 and it's Mm -hmm. interesting to think about the degree to which and i think this is the far end of kevin smith having a certain cachet yes but it sort of dovetails with the moment when and we brought up spider-man as being Mm -hmm. one of these movies that's appearing you know in this immediate moment Mm -hmm. like the decline of the viewisk universe, at least in terms of critical estimation, (laughs) sort of dovetails with the beginnings of the Marvel comic universe. And uh, I'll just briefly throw in, because this is something that has haunted me for a very long time, (laughs) that circa, I'd say about 1999 or so, there was a Esquire magazine feature, my father was a subscriber, Mm -hmm. in which various uh, experts were asked to name the next Martin Scorsese, including Martin Scorsese, who selected Wes Anderson. And among those uh, polled was Andrew Saris, who said Kevin Smith. Oh, no. no. And this <laughs> detail has chilled me for a long
2: time.
0: And maybe in a different world, he could have been.
2: Well, no, I mean... In the Ask universe perhaps?
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes, Aliza, the esque universe <laughs> Um, I'll talk about my movie now. Nick gave me some Call It Loving, so could you say why you gave that to me?
3: Well, because I know you're a feminazi, mm. and <laughs> I wanted something to put a bee in your bonnet. <laughs> and it has all sorts of dicey stuff with, with regards to relations between men and women. Mm-hmm. Also, I think it's a very, very wonderful movie. And, I mean, this was supposed to be the one that was uh, going to get you agitato, but with the benefit of hindsight both of the movies that i gave you i believe to be actually good <laughs> yeah. so i should have given you some just flat out fucking trash
0: like i said we'll do this again and you can punish me okay punish away um you can avenge Eliza. so this film which is directed by james b harris the film starts in a carnival well actually excuse me the film starts with a fantasy sequence and there's this voiceover narration by this woman will come to know as scarlet who she owns this giant mansion somewhere, I guess in California, somewhere on the West Coast. It's always sunny. It's always beautiful out uh, there by the ocean. And she's playing a widow. And Zalman King, who who plays the, I guess the main character, Robert, is walking her around and playing this uh, undertaker. And it's sort of like this prelude to the widow, Scarlet, having sex with the undertaker, Robert. And she gives sort of this very bizarre voiceover narration and then it goes to a carnival. Carnival of course being a site of desires and forbidden things and uh, voyeurism right and he goes to this one tent which has a sleeping beauty and it's this it's just this woman you know a young woman played by Tisa Farrow who's lying in bed and you know she has this gauzy curtain around her and men can pay a dollar to kiss her and try to wake her up And Robert hangs around after the show and he comes up to the the setup of this uh, particular attraction is very crazy because it's it's a man who's dressed up like a doctor and a woman, older but sexy, dressed up as a nurse. And he goes up to the doctor and he sort of asks him some questions and then he offers to buy the Sleeping Beauty and the doctor sells it for 20 grand and he gives Robert the serum that keeps her asleep. And so you cut in because when he's presenting the attraction, you don't know why this woman is asleep. It's like, OK, is she in a coma? And then it's like, no, this is a medically induced coma. Like someone chose to put this woman to sleep. They don't know who her parents are. He bought this attraction from someone else. She's been asleep for eight years. So that's a disgusting premise. <laughs> it's a very dis- like It's like I was like. Wow. So Robert takes her, the Sleeping Beauty, back to the mansion where Scarlet lives along with Angelica, who helps role play too. And she sometimes dresses up as like a sexy maid or a naughty nun. And eventually, you know, the girl comes, she wakes up. Her she The drugs get out of her system, basically. And he starts to have a romance with her and she has been asleep for eight years and she's still a young woman. So she kind of acts like a high school student. And she has these very naive ideas about what love is, but she slowly gets sucked into like the games that Scarlett and Angelica like to play. And Robert sort of gets frustrated and he's like, I'm going to take her away from this. I'm going to save her from this life. And then eventually she wants to go back and they do. And at the very end, Robert makes the decision to put her back to sleep and display her in the at the carnival, and it's like legi- it's like legi- it was like so hard to watch that ending. Uh, like it's like
1: it, Lola Montez level discomforting.
0: <sighs> no, it, no, like I said, it was like we won't grow old together, which is just I feel like we won't grow old together was very helpful to me. Because it just showed I was in a terrible relationship that was a lot like the one that is shown in We Won't Grow Old Together with an older man, and I was like, "Wow, yeah, no, this is really what this is. I won't grow old with this fucking guy. Goodbye." <laughs> and it's it's a real eye opener. And I think, um, you know, Nick, you we were talking a little bit before we did this, and um, you know, sometimes I think it is kind of useful to show misogyny and just be like, "Look, this is what a man will do to a woman if." unchecked right like it's really um
3: well, and I, instructional <laughs> and i and I think this comes up in the interview that i did and this yeah. is you know something that james jimmy has always talked about is that this was a movie made by a guy entering middle age who by his own confession had had little success in keeping together adult relationships mm-hmm. and it's a very unsettling bit of self-analysis of purging and it is a very discomforting movie for all of those reasons but one of the things that i find so worthy about it is that it is just that honest it is Mm -hmm. not somebody trying to represent themselves uh as a faultless member of uh of society it is somebody who has hang-ups and who is putting them face forward and you can make of it what you will as a viewer and i mean it is very very off-putting yeah
0: and i think i mean it doesn't demonstrate character growth mm. he does not grow as a person no uh, uh, and, and move. yeah
3: and the whole thing moves at this very like narcotized sleepwalker yes. pace it's a very singular film yeah like, Nothing in his very short filmography is quite like it. There's very little in American cinema of the early 70s that I would really liken it to
0: this
3: glacier-like pace.
0: Yeah, and it moves in and out of fantasy. Like a scene will start and you're not really sure if this is like one of the role plays. Certain role plays get repeated and you realize that it's literally the same thing every time that they do the role play. Sometimes with different people playing different roles. The, you know, the role plays will freeze and then they'll resume them. You know, someone will walk out of the room and the two people will freeze. That person will come back and they'll resume. Like it's really strange. And Zalman King plays this role like he's just had sex and he's resting. Like really, that's the only way I can describe it. It's not like he's sleepy. It's not like he's bored. It's like he's just Achieved orgasm and he needs a good rest.
3: <laughs> and we'd we'd be remiss not to mention the fact that uh, Richard Pryor yes. is He's in a totally... completely different movie.
0: Oh yeah, and no, and the the thing with so um, Richard Pryor plays Robert's best friend, and you know
3: slash charity case
0: slash charity case. Yes, very importantly slash charity case, and Richard Pryor is basically somebody who has a massive drug problem who can barely enunciate. He's constantly smashed on some substance. You don't really know if he's just drunk all the time. You know, there are a lot of scenes where the scenes where he does appear, he's like sweating profusely and then he like dies like halfway through the film. And it's a really amazing, interesting performance by Richard Pryor. And it's unfortunate that he didn't get to do more like kind of complicated roles because he really brings something So unique and, like, interesting to it.
3: Yeah, I mean, he's the one character, and it's, I mean, it's so strange, the world that this takes Mm -hmm. place in. There's, like, six people that you see the entire time. Yes, The action principally moves between this, like, baronial estate and a jazz club. Yeah,
0: and money is no object. Yeah. Like, again, because getting at the idea of fantasy, there's nothing that they can't afford. There's nothing that they can't do, and they choose to do this.
3: And... (laughs) I should just briefly throw in that Jimmy Harris's real sort of claim to fame other than the films that he directed is that he was the early producer and sort of co-conspirator of Stanley Kubrick. And it's interesting to see the weird dialogue that their films continue even after they've parted company. And this is often sort of thought of as Jimmy's eyes wide shut yeah many years before eyes wide shut and in in fact and i think this may come up as well purportedly zalman king star of the film was consulted Mm -hmm. uh on eyes wide shut being as he was a expert in all matters erotic
0: yes Uh, he was also the director of the red shoe diaries for people don't know we can move on so michael what did eliza give you
1: she gave me something really fun And uh, what a delight after Mitress, though I watched it before Mitress. <laughs> My mind is still reeling from Mitress, which is the last one that I watched. A pedicab Driver, which is a 1989 uh Hong martial arts action comedy romance tragedy. <laughs> <laughs> um, and what I loved about it was that it's, it's so agile with those tonal shifts. I should just start out by saying that it was a really interesting choice for me because as Elisa probably knows i'm not that well versed in martial arts films it's not the genre i'm going to go to first i have a lot of really big gaps outside of some jackie chan films <laughs> i've actually never even seen enter the dragon so i have a lot to learn when it comes yeah to this.
2: i thought there was little chance that you were going to dislike the film but i also thought there probably wouldn't be many other pretexts for you to actually watch the film Right.
1: I have to be forced. But that's how it is with so many things, right? Yeah. Like I knew I wanted to see you had talked about this. It was actually showed at Metrograph when Metrograph first opened. And um you were talking about it like it was just the most amazing movie. And um I had missed it then. So I was delighted to, to have to sit and watch it. It was really it's a really fleet ninety six minutes. It moves from one thing to the next with rocket speed. Um, so a little tiny little background. Sammo Hong plays a pedicab driver, of course, <laughs> and he is in love with uh, a baker's daughter in 1930s Macau. And then there's a secondary plot where the more handsome hero is also a pedicab driver, and he's in love with a, a young woman who turns out to be a prostitute. And that other story turns out to be both the romantic comedy and the tragedy as it turns out and it seems to have like a much do about nothing structure and quality to it Um, I don't know if it's actually based on Shakespeare but I was certainly thinking about much do about nothing It's when it's finally revealed that she's a prostitute he rejects her but then they have to do this elaborate trick to make pretending that he's dead to make her go back to him it's like straight out of that but of course in between all this there's like insane amazing brilliant calamitous Disturbing at times, but always amusing fight scenes. I mean just I, I so I had never seen Sam o. Hung Do these stunts in a movie before I mean he's he's amazing He has this girth and he's just yeah. like throwing his body across the screen in ways that you didn't think would be possible for anyone Let alone somebody his size. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just so tightly edited I mean, there's just these fast set twos but then all of a sudden it'll slow down for a second just as the foot hits the head with such an insane violent burst that it just sent me like, you know, reeling back on the couch. I was giggling to myself, watching it by <laughs> myself. And then also uh, the, the version, the DVD <laughs> that you gave me um, is actually open captioned as opposed to just subtitled. So every single thing that happens, it says like in bone crunches, <laughs> you know, every sound is, is written out. So it actually made it a little more visceral because <laughs> um, there's a lot of bone crunching. That's true. A lot. Yeah. Um, it was just a complete delight. I want to see more.
2: Yeah, uh, he actually directed this one, too. Yes, um, I should have mentioned that. Yeah, he, he's so light on his feet. It's almost as if he defies gravity. I mean, he's yeah, um, one of the great performers and choreographers of, uh, of that period. And there's an amazing set piece where I think he's in a pool hall. And he fights this gang leader who's played by Lao Kar Lung, the, the very famous action choreographer for a lot of kung fu films during that period, through, uh, I think, uh, three different rooms. Mm-hmm. They spill over a bunch of... Uh, I think they, they're using pool cues to fight and then eventually they're just using their feet and mm-hmm. um, they tumble over rice paper walls and it just it's sort of this like never-ending mm-hmm. um action sequence oh yeah
1: they just keep bursting through wall after yeah. wall after wall there are a lot of scenes like that i also love when they grab the the long tubular oh the halogen light lights yeah. 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 <laughs> and, and they fight as though they're, they're like lightsabers. lightsabers it's a yeah. star wars parody <laughs> and then there's a fight scene that happens while a woman's giving birth and so that so they, <laughs> they're like jumping around the bedroom trying to avoid her while while she's squeezing out a baby yeah and there's there's a lot there's some surprisingly harrowing violence in there too yeah um that kind of took me by surprise but hey it's all in good fun ultimately
2: yeah well i think it has the sort of levity of a, a great you know musical you know every set piece is just very very choreographed and elaborate and it's very expansive so yeah if, if you like a good musical yes, i think you'll the pedicab driver you know I do. yes yeah, no, so perfect. i i knew that you do so
1: yeah it was fantastic thank you lisa
3: well michael you mentioned uh enter the dragon i would say a, f- a good follow-up uh if you're newly inducted into the cult of Samo is as a uh, film which i don't know what the uh, cantonese title is but the english title
1: is given as enter the fat dragon <laughs> <laughs> i was looking him up and i noticed that actually or there was one. I think is there one called Crutching Tiger Fatty Dragon? <laughs> I, I There's saw a this. lot of variations on that. Um, <laughs>
3: it's, it's essentially a, a theme that's gone back to quite a lot. In body, body positivity. Yeah. So before there was the Ask Universe, there was Woody Allen's Northeast. <laughs> 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 and what uh, what my good friend Michael hooked me up with is Woody's September, uh, which I actually was not completely certain as to if I had or had not seen it. They do kind of blend together at a certain point, and Mm -hmm. a lot of them, uh, in my case, were viewed as a teenager. But, in point of fact, I had not. I went in totally cold. The film is a chamber drama.
0: Shocker. (laughs) <laughs>
1: no, but really, this
0: one.
3: Yes, you never' even I, see I, I out there's window. no outdoors, no <laughs> no glimpse of the outdoors takes place over maybe three individual days s- with some spacing between them at a Vermont country home, uh, which is occupied by Mia Farrow. She has a house guest out in the guest cottage, Sam Watterson, who is a ad writer who is aspiring to become a novelist. She has a near neighbor who uh, pays her many visits, uh, Denholm Elliot, the great, mm-hmm. great yes. Denholm Elliott. Also in town is her mother, a uh, former sort of socialite gadfly woman about town, played by Elaine Stritch, who is there with her current husband, Jack Warden, who somewhat bafflingly is playing a physicist. <laughs> uh, he looks to all the world like a retired cop, but... he's there as a physicist this sounds like a
0: parody of a Woody Allen movie
3: (laughs) well what I didn't know going in but which I grokked pretty quickly is that like all or like very many Woody Allen films it has a sort of text that it's built out from which is Chekhov's Uncle Vanya with some gender flips I actually well within the first 10 minutes noted This kind of moves like the Konchalevsky Uncle Vanya from 1970. Which is one of his favorite films. Yeah, and as well as Menahem Golan. Um, Great minds. (laughs) And uh, it's very, very handsomely lensed, in variety speak, by Mr. Uh, Carlo Di Palma. I I think probably the main attraction for most folks is the Elaine Stritch performance. It should be said this... uh, the sort of meat of the film is this long dark night of the soul where everyone comes together and there are various attractions that circulate in this small group of people but they're very rarely reciprocated or very rarely uncomplicated so the Mia Faro character is very much pining for Sam Watterson who himself is sort of hung up on her visiting friend, who is Diane Wiest, and Denholm Elliott is holding a candle out for the Mia Farrow character. There is also, to tie it together with Pedicab Driver, there's a lot of good pool cue work going on. (laughs) And it should be said, there's a lot of kind of addressing the darkness quite literally in this movie. The big centerpiece is a power outage where the Elaine Stritch character is consulting the ghosts of her past via Ouija board. Um, She has this sort of Lana Turner slash Johnny Stompanato-esque backstory where an abusive boyfriend was murdered. Her daughter Mia Farrow took the rap at the time, but it comes out in due course that she was perhaps just taking the rap for her mother. Um, The other performance I want to mention really briefly is uh, there are the house has been, is up for sale, and at one point there is a middle-aged couple who comes to uh, look at the house. And the husband of the couple is an actor called Ira Wheeler. Otherwise, I mean, I, I, there's some great stretch one-liners, uh, something about merging age spots, and maybe they'll become a tan, uh, <laughs> or various... Uh, expressions of disgust at both herself and her daughter, who is, I think, likened to a Polish refugee at one point. So Uh, she dresses like a Polish refugee. Yeah, dresses like a Polish refugee. She says of her outfit on the way out the door, I look like one of the hundred neediest cases. And, I I mean, the actual realization of the blackout is very, very handsomely done. It's something that I always love. James Gray has a great one in The Yards, where, you know, it's a great... Great excuse to bust out the candles and uh, get some good chiaroscuro going on. Uh, Woody Allen does it again in uh, Husbands and Wives, uh, a film which, as you know, exercises a great fascination for me. This one, I don't know that it got its hooks in exactly. I found myself maybe admiring it more than feeling it, whereas The Green Mile I felt but had complete disdain for. <laughs> <laughs> um... I mean, it's it's very much a filmed theater piece. Like there are several plot points that hinge on people like walking into rooms. Like I I thought of you know it's 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 your it's it's farce like it's like an episode of Frasier. Diane Weist and Waterston are walked in on. Jack Warden walks in on uh, Mia Farrow as she's slagging off on her mother. Uh, another thing I just found myself thinking about is how odd that. For reasons we need not go into but how odd that pharaoh and Allen collaboration is because it seems like time and again it's so far from what you think of as the usual husband-wife collaboration where there's some kind of ennobling of the i mean assuming it is a husband director and wife actress i don't know of any instances of it going the other way but so often Pharaoh is playing these just
1: wasted, stringy-haired, sad sack down in the dumps. And even when, even when um, it's a little different, like Hannah and her sisters, in which she's supposed to be the anchor, the emotional anchor and the rock of the family, it it's pushed to a point where that becomes the problem. Right, mm-hmm. the, her psychological problem is that she's too good. I which I which I always found an interesting part of that movie, but yeah, I mean, crimes and Misdemeanor, She's she makes a horrible decision. She betrays him in another woman. She's this again, kind of like this pathetic, simpering wastrel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's nice, <laughs> <laughs> nice, which nice and way then, to treat you. Then
3: all comes to a head in husbands and wives, which. Uh, my theory is is actually a horror movie about Liam Neeson realizing he's surrounded by pharmaceutical drug addicts.
1: (laughs) When he just looks around the room at that point, like what am I doing here? Like, wait (laughs) a minute. I'm around the the most
3: hardcore pill heads in (laughs) Manhattan. (laughs) I need to get back to Ulster. <laughs> this is a nightmare.
1: Um, before we move on, I just, I do want to say the reason that I w- wanted to hear your response to September, uh, apart from that I thought that you would perhaps enjoy it, um, and that it would be a respite from the Green Mile, I'm, mm-hmm. we're talking about it, like a 77 minute movie as mm-hmm. opposed to 180 something minute, um, which was, by the way, shot at Kaufman Astoria Studios, oh. September. Mm-hmm. Um was that? I'm really fascinated by that period of Woody Allen. I think I think that he was. I mean, he didn't give a shit about what his audience was saying or thinking about his films. He was making one film after another, and he was making mood pieces. Well, and it's it's, it's, it's the same year exciting.
3: as Radio Days, which I yeah. which I hold as quite close to a masterpiece. Yeah, that's a great film. And immediately before Another Woman, which it's been a while, but Excellent. which I have a very high estimation of as well. Which. I mean, maybe that's the nearest equivalent that you can find to that Pharaoh Allen teaming would be Cassavetes and Roland, who stars in Another Woman. Not in terms of the actual quality of the output, perhaps, but in terms of being uh, putting one's partner in somewhat unflattering positions. Um, though Casavetti certainly was not afraid to put himself in an unflattering position as well. Um, yeah, it's it's a damn interesting run and i mean the very existence of the movie
1: is curious it, exactly. it is such a bleak the most emotionally searing part of the film is mia farrow basically saying she doesn't want to live mm-hmm. i mean that's it's as extreme as that I mean, the, well i and think there's I not think, much at the light, light at the end of the tunnel
3: i think at one point she actually says that's my problem i always did want to live and that that's
1: all oh, right She like i want to swallow a bunch of pills but yeah I, but, well
3: i mean mm-hmm. but It's not as simple as her being a mere suicidal. It's the fact of having this drive to live coupled with life being insuperbly painful, which again brings us back to the Green Mile. And really they're (laughs) the same film in many respects. They really
1: are.
0: (laughs) Well, Elisa, I sort of used a similar... I thought you would enjoy this, but it's not necessarily an enjoyable film. It's just a lot
2: to chew. So could you talk about... Yeah, I did not enjoy it. Oh, I'm sorry. But after I watched it, I, I thought it would be interesting to talk to you about it. Sure. Um, And, and learn why you chose it for me. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a film called Traps by the Czech New Wave filmmaker Vera Chitlova. And uh, it was made in, I believe, 1998. Mm-hmm. A story that uh, sort of Elliptical, but basically centers around um, the discovery of a woman in a forest as these two men are driving through, very intoxicated. They egg each other on to rape her in the forest, and they end up driving to her house afterwards. And when she wakes up, she pretends to have amnesia and offers them these drinks um, that, I guess, are spiked with... Um, Sedatives,
0: veterinary ser- sedatives,
2: yes. So she roofies them, yes. And then afterwards, they um, they fall asleep for a long time and wake up and realize that they have uh, been castrated. Very fun moment <laughs> um, in the film when they just kind of stumble around grabbing their crotch. <laughs> and uh, I guess it takes a while for the bleeding to stop, so they talk about that a lot. Mm-hmm somehow they make it home respectively with their testicles in lunch boxes and decide to throw them in the freezer while they figure out a way to uh sew them back on.
0: One guy gets his dick eaten by accident. Yes. So <laughs> his yeah. friend pops over and says like, oh, the sausage. Again, they're in Czechoslovakia.
2: Yeah. So Just cooks whoops. it up, so munches yeah. it. The the guy who is there's one guy who's really handsome and he's a sort of a government, uh, he's a government employee. Well, he's like an ad executive and okay, the, he, the- he gained, he,
0: he's like, he, he gained prominence because he's come up with this cool new slogan for this candy, like these ball candies called Bock balls. And he's like, just, it's something like, just suck them, just put them in your mouth. It's something totally juvenile and asinine but everyone's like this is the greatest ad campaign of all time you're a
2: genius and he's like i know i'm a genius and the other guy the older guy is like a government guy but it's the older guy who gets his uh balls eaten yes okay so i mixed them up i thought it was the ad guy who got his balls eaten that was actually the the government dude no he Um, just came up with the slogan about balls anyway okay (laughs) yeah the Bach balls are very strange um I mean, the the symbolism isn't exactly subtle. No. Um, And so you just say, you see the guys eating these chocolate balls in the beginning, and you're like, where is this going? And then they go on this drive, and all this stuff happens. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And so, yeah, the guy, the government employee goes home. He's having a chit-chat with his wife, Mm -hmm. and their neighbor comes over, and he's hungry, so he just looks in the fridge to find a snack Mm -hmm. for himself. So he decides to cook himself up an omelet, he thinks that the balls are, are awful, so he throws them into the, the pan uh, after he cuts them up. And it's, it's quite graphic. Yeah. And, and so he eats them. I guess the other guy eventually meets a love interest who is the daughter of a business partner, and uh, tries to impress her. So there's a very funny scene where he goes to a sex shop and gets a dildo mm-hmm. in order to make it with her.
0: Sounds very funny
2: <laughs> <laughs> to
3: make it. <laughs> Whatever. 1967. But he can't.
0: But he can't. To use another great uh, retired phrase, he can't baller yeah.
3: anymore. <laughs> or if we were in a Woody Allen film, we'd say making love. Um. <laughs>
2: Oh. Um, anyway, continue. <laughs> um so I I guess the the beginning of the film is like well, I guess you don't realize it when you're when you're watching it, but it is also at the at the uh, abattoir and there are pigs who are getting castrated and these these are shown this is shown in very close-up shots and mm-hmm. it's definitely real. Yeah. Definitely documentary footage mm-hmm. of piggies getting castrated. And you realize later on that the the person who's performing it is the woman who's yeah. the the rape victim of the, the story. So please tell me why you chose this uh. one.
0: <laughs> well, here's the thing. So Vera Chitlova, best known for making Daisies, which was later remade by I mean Celine and Julie Go Boning is sort of a, is basically a remake. Because they say in Daisies, they say their names, which are Celine and Julie.
1: Let's say inspired by.
0: Okay. Inspired by. Create, he did uh, fan fiction about daisies, <laughs> and then it was turned into Selena like Soviet geopolitical because obviously all like the time stuff isn't it? like the freezing of time is not in uh, daisies. But so Vera Chilova did that. She did a second film called Fruit of Paradise, and then she was banned by the communists from making films for many years. She returned in the 90s with, the, I think this was like her first film after sort of returning to filmmaking, and you know uh, something that did you you didn't sort of get into is that the film so there's the first part which is all about this castration and the and most of the film sort of follows these guys oh no what do we do without our balls and our cocks and it's it's like this weird dark comedy it's sort of like a like if you turned some like man child comedy upside down right it's so it's so odd and bizarre the way that it's played and but there's also this component of the woman and her being like she doesn't really know what to do. She's struggling with this trauma. Her boyfriend's like, "It's okay, I forgive you for being raped." Like that's literally a line. So she's not getting a lot of support from him, and in the end, in the very end, she gets taken away to the insane asylum. Mm-hmm. And so, I felt like the f- this film is really sort of saying that, you know, as a woman in patriarchal society, you can commit the ultimate act of transgression, which is to castrate two men in who are in who have, you know, a lot of power, and you're still kind of even if you do that transgression you're still kind of fucked and you're still like oppressed by the system and you're not you know in order to truly transgress you have to like actually tear down the system and I think chilova it's not something you know I was reading reviews of it at the time and a lot of people sort of consider it as this failure and I would love to quote this review from the that was in uh, variety which is it's a big stretch to believe that these supposedly bright guys would fall for her story and take her back to her isolated house, but that's just what they do. But it's like, they're not bright. They're idiots. The only reason why they succeed is because they they are just the epitome of like chauvinism. And like the, the, the guy, you know, this guy came up with this supposedly brilliant ad slogan about putting balls in your mouth. That's stupid. This, uh, you know, the politician guy is always advocating that you just take whatever you want. That's not intelligence. That's that's the measure of what is rewarded in a patriarchal society. And so I think it's a really interesting statement about what it's like to be a woman in a society that's very divided by these things. So that's yeah, why. It,
2: it did strike me that the politics of the film, which it very much wears on its sleeves, mm-hmm. uh, felt kind of dated from our perspective. But mm-hmm. e- even from, if you're thinking about when it came out in the late 90s, yeah. it, it actually feels like a film... With politics that probably belonged to the sixties, right? But I guess that's a sign of what it was like to be a woman filmmaker in Czechoslovakia yeah. at that time.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And
2: maybe still is. I'm not sure. You know, I I think it's a pretty straightforward, staunch feminist approach. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, having read some interviews with her, I think she would she would deny that. Mm-hmm. I mean, she always hated being called a feminist. Yes but it is um the the lack of subtlety just kind of threw me i think
0: yeah it's a, it's weird because again it's like the the sort of the tools that it's using to make its maybe this more nuanced point are very blatant and mm-hmm. i think that as you know part of what is having good taste is like not enjoying things that are blatant and so i think um yeah this this is you know challenging a lot of things on a lot of levels and I am not and I'm not going to say that I didn't like that like oh yeah the ball thing is a bit much but
2: again <laughs> um well I thought that the set design was really impressive yeah. and and I guess she has a, a background in architecture mm-hmm. studies and um all the interiors are extremely impressive and and the way that she breaks up um, interior space I found really interesting And so almost this sort of like cubist montage and um and, and you wonder like there's this great party scene in the first half where you just kind of wonder if she did any blocking with the actors or if it was just kind of uh, done on the fly but mm-hmm. it just seemed, it seems like a very a slick kind of sort of montage that she, she puts together yeah I, I mean I, th- I think that Part of my issue with the, with the lack of subtlety is also when the performances. I mean, mm-hmm. maybe maybe it's different if if you understand the language firsthand, but um, just reading the subtitles and then also like watching the action, which are, I mean, the the action is quite slapsticky yeah. at times. Yeah. So it's the the combination of the um, explicit dialogue, which kind of states over and over again what the film is about, mm-hmm. and the slapsticky performances is just so over the top that kind of hits you on the head a little bit, but I, I do, I admire the mise-en-scene very much. It's mm-hmm. just, um, aside from the one, uh, rape scene in the forest, which is sort of long takes and, mm-hmm. a distance, um, the interiors are just, uh, very sort of like, just always swarming with activity and bodies. And I guess that was, that was just technically a very impressive thing to, to see yeah. sustained throughout the film.
0: Yeah, definitely. And, um, Yeah, I think I will say, interestingly, that uh, the bigness and the obviousness is something that was present in the film that Nick gave me. James B. Harris film? No, the film that I was meant to enjoy, which was Blake Edwards' SOB. And
3: I want to say, as I was putting this duo together, my thought was, well, okay, I've got one fun movie here and then I'll give Violet like a hot shot of toxic masculinity. (laughs) Then shortly after the fact, I actually thought about SOB and I was like, wait a minute. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I've actually just done the same thing twice.
0: You did indeed. You did indeed. So what is SOB? Well, quickly. Uh, Blake Edwards this is a 1981 Blake Edwards film the year before he did Victor Victoria it also stars Julie Andrews Julie Andrews is very much Julie Andrews in this film by another name she's a musical actress who was made famous by playing Peter Pan and she's married to this guy um, Felix Farmer perhaps a reference to Francis Farmer
3: Richard Mulligan is the actor yes but
0: but his but he plays the director and he's always had hits he's never failed and then he has a giant 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 failure uh which stars his wife
3: the and ho- which is somewhat somewhat hewing closely to the failure of a mega production that Blake Edwards and wife Joy uh Andrews undertook uh Darling Lily in yes. 1970
0: yes yes so the so the film nightwind is a huge failure and so he undergoes a nervous breakdown and a lot of the film is just the chaos that is around him while he's mentally incapacitated and then all of a sudden he snaps out of it and he's like look I know what I need to do to I'm gonna not recut the film I'm gonna reshoot it and what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna make it really dark and really moody and I'm gonna make you know my wife show her breasts and she's gonna totally shatter her good girl image in this movie Get ready, and the whole everyone in the studio, including his wife, who's like on the verge of divorcing him, is like, "Please don't do this. This is so stupid. This is moronic." But then they're like, "Well, you know, you could actually make a lot of money out of this." So they go ahead. Yeah, he, eventually he he so he realizes this, and there's this really goofy scene where Julie Andrews is like redoing this sugary musical number that she did at the beginning. But
3: they they essentially remake it as some call it loving. Yeah. <laughs>
0: yes and she you know and it's all dark and she's wearing this flowing red gown and like there are leather men taunting her pulling her into this devil's mouth pulling her into hell and uh yeah and then the studio again tries to take it away from him and they're like what the hell is this this is awful and uh he the director flips out again and he Basically threatens a bunch of people with a toy gun and uh, tries to take his movie back, but he gets shot by the police. And so there's this big send off and they, you know, they give him sort of a hagiography and uh, try to treat him like he was not a totally insane person at the end of his life. And they talk about all the successes that he had, the box you know, again, it's all about money. It's all about like, you know, that was a great picture because it made a lot of money. And his friends... His trio of friends sort of pull a Graham Parsons on him, where they get really drunk, they steal his body from the morgue, and uh, they burn it up. Even though his family has planned a very nice funeral for him, and no one knows that send he's him not- off in
3: a funeral pyre. Yes, after this, like lengthy Stealing debauch, the body. during which they're steadily drinking throughout. Yes, and
0: one guy pees himself, shits himself, shits himself. <laughs> It's a very yeah, it's a very interesting I don't know. So did you love it? <laughs> I see here's the thing. I feel so again, it's like very like it's not subtle. You loved it, didn't you? <laughs> not subtle. I feel like I would have laughed more if I was in an audience with an audience because they're like the oh no, what are they gonna do? Next factor would have been more in the air and because I was just watching it at home by myself, I was not laughing as much. As I probably would have, because I actually I really do like Blake Edwards. Um, obviously, th- there are a lot of party scenes in this. Like the first probably first half of it is really just people partying in his ocean front manor yeah. while he's li- he's either like stalking around drugged, like trying to hang himself with a rope while other people are screwing and drinking around him, or just like lying in bed incapacitated. But and and I really I really do like. You know, the party, some of the Pink Panther movies, some are better than others, obviously. Some are better than others. But this is sort of, you know, I don't know. I was I, I went between sort of like being bored by it and and really enjoying it. So
3: I just find the basic structural conceit of it absolutely insane mm-hmm. and so dynamically pulled off the fact that it is essentially a triptych mm-hmm. where we start off, as you said, with the Richard Mulligan character comatose, depressed, and like, you know, in classic, uh, like the Dorothy Parker poem, just burning through every suicide method and failing at every one of them. Mm-hmm. We have the center section wherein he attempts to launch his pornographic epic <laughs> uh, and then commits suicide by cop. And mm-hmm. then this strange, like, Cassavetes esque postscript yes. which i heavily suspect is based on a anecdote about john barrymore's corpse being stolen from a uh, funeral home by this uh, hollywood hellfire club this association of heavy drinkers that he belonged to whose membership included errol flynn and mm-hmm. wc fields and i mean one of many sort of hollywood inside jokes uh in the film yes like I don't there are very few contemporary like hard art house films that have such a bold formalist feint like right at the middle of them, like uh-huh. the alleged central character of the movie is in a coma or dead for more than half of the movie. yes, that's fucking insane it is,
0: it is not it is so weird and it 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 has like that. There's something out of time about it, right? Because it's all these, these men, these older men who work for the studio, including Robert Loggia. Mm-hmm.
3: But he, they're William all, Holden, it should be. Yeah. Who's going to be dead with a coffee table through his head within like 12 months, I think, of this film's release. Yeah.
0: And it's just like, there's even a line where somebody says like, you know, look, whenever I think I know what people want, I'm wrong whenever I feel like I know what they want I'm wrong and the movie itself the fact that uh, Nightwind was green lit is a sign that they don't know what people want and then the way that they reshoot it shows that they really don't know what people want and yet it goes on to make a ton of money because yeah. uh, the director died unceremoniously um, and also I have to say shout out to Shelley Winters love Shelley Winters anytime I see her she's great in this uh, as Julie Andrews' agent who says look you know he went <laughs> referring to her husband you know just let him show you naked or rape you whatever it's great i'm sure it's great
3: well you're welcome for (laughs) two of the exact same movie
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah just again just like the idea that it's like well what is the problem with this movie oh i know this uh really wholesome woman needs to get naked you know And, and, and it's interesting in the intervening years that cycle that like good girl and then flip it make it bad sure it's like the time on that is infinitesimal where it's like britney spears big star at 15 needs to show her sexuality at least by 18 19 even though if she won't actually talk about having sex losing her virginity so there it is
1: i think we've all learned a lot of lessons today
0: yes thank you all for coming this was
1: thank you for having happy us happy
0: birthday to film comment. <laughs> Fifty-five.
3: Sure this is
1: just the way to celebrate now.
3: 55 years young
0: Fifty-five years young. You've been listening to the Film Comment podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Nicholas Repold, and edited by Michael Oatmark. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Film Comment is a bi-monthly magazine published by the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has featured in-depth reviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com slash subscribe to purchase a digital or print subscription to the magazine. Film Comment, at the heart of film culture for over 50 years.